From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. June is Pride Month, a month dedicated to acceptance, equality, the celebration of LGBTQ plus people, and to raise awareness about issues facing the LGBTQ plus community. In tonight's episode, we want to focus on challenges facing transgender people and resources available to help. New estimates from the CDC show the number of people who identify as transgender has nearly doubled in recent years. It estimates 1.4% of 13 to 17 year olds and 1.3% of 18 to 24 year olds were transgender compared to half a percent of older adults, pointing to a generational shift. In addition to that, Time reported 2021 was the deadliest year on record for transgender people in the U.S. And a national survey from the Trevor Project showed about 94% of LGBTQ plus youth reported recent politics negatively impacted their mental health. And half of trans and non-binary youth seriously considered suicide. We will have hotline numbers at the bottom of your screen during the show if you or someone you know needs help or support. And in our next segment, we explore a KGW original podcast, Should Be Alive, and the murder of Nikki Kuhnhausen, who was a 17-year-old transgender girl. The producer of the show, our own Ashley Korsland, joins us to tell us about the case and how it led to Nikki's law and the end of the so-called panic defense in Washington state. First, welcome to my guest, Seth Johnstone from Basic Rights, Oregon, and Jess Guerrero, a social worker with the OHSU Transgender Health Program. Welcome to Straight Talk. It's nice to have you both here. Thanks, Thanks for having us. I mentioned at the top of the show what a difficult year, really a couple of years it's been for the transgender community, and we just got something into the newsroom about an incident I wanted to ask you both about. A 16-year-old male student was arrested earlier this week in Kalama at Kalama High School for a hate and assault crime against two transgender students at Kalama High School. That student was using anti-gay slurs, loudly stating there are too many than using a slur at this school. I mean, that's got to hurt to see these kinds of things still happening, Seth. Absolutely. I mean, the most important thing is making sure that there are protections for young people and that we're not seeing this type of discrimination when young people are trying to access their basic education. And Jess, your thoughts? Yeah, um, so many studies show that when there are supportive adults in a young person's life, the rate of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation goes down. And a lot of times our youth have to count on schools uh, to provide that if they don't have that in their, in their homes or with their families. And when we see uh, school environments that aren't supportive of folks uh, being their true selves, and being targeted for being their true selves. Um, it's definitely a failure of, of the system and, um, and adults needing to step up for youth. And these transgender students are getting a lot of support from their high school community and we'll be following this story. But what sort of trends are you seeing, Seth, when it comes to this issue? Yeah, I think statewide tracking what's happening, we're seeing this come up a lot at school board levels. We're seeing LGBTQ visibility uh, up for debate, for, for vote uh, in those spaces. There's been bans on pride flags in schools like Newburgh, Newburgh School District. We've seen uh, debates on whether we should have comprehensive sex ed, even though it's been provided by Oregon Department of Education that that is a standard for the state. Um, we've seen you know debates on whether or not there should be restroom access in Southern Oregon. Um, and the, you know, the most important 
important thing is is that we've also seen limits on on library books and this the visibility of LGBTQ topics in educational curriculum um, and we're seeing that debate happening at a school board level so that's kind of what we're seeing locally uh, that we're keeping the most attention to and you mentioned the Newburgh school board and just this week you probably heard that the last two liberal members of that school board resigned because of the controversial decisions made right. by that school board um, just what are you hearing you're the social worker at OHSU's transgender health program what are you hearing from your patients it's definitely, as you said, been a tough few years, um, and healthcare access in general for everyone in this country has been incredibly poor. And uh, we really hope it someday to be a widespread common practice that any provider, mental health, physical health, um, would be able to affirm someone's identity. And what we know is that that is not the case right now. And folks are having to come to specialty clinics like ours um, to get primary care, to get specialty care. Um, and if they are wanting medical intervention to affirm their identity, uh, often traveling you know, six, seven hours just, just to come. Um, and just overall, the level of anxiety, especially for our young people, is extremely high. Uh, even though they may not be in these school districts or in the states that are passing laws, uh, they, they feel the weight of it. They worry about their care. They worry about their supportive and loving parents being targeted uh, at state level. Uh, and we, we're talking about it. And I think it really demonstrates the role of minority stress in physical and mental health outcomes. Well, let's talk about some of that legislation causing the stress. According to the Human Rights Campaign, this year is on pace to set a record number of anti-transgender bills passed by states. They relate to health care, instruction in schools, bathroom use. In all, 300 bills compared to 150 last year. Yep. Seth, how would you describe what we're seeing as far as legislation goes? Yeah, we're seeing an unprecedented legislative assault on LGBTQIA2S plus individuals in the United States. And the biggest thing to pay attention to is, you know, our, our anti-trans bathroom laws that were taking place, uh, you know, were, were largely defeated. Uh, the public was saying, we're not seeing proof of this, you know, what is, what is the evidence? And so we saw a lot of the anti-trans bathroom laws fall away. Uh, around 2018 and 19, we saw a lull in these bills. And then when 2020 happened, we saw shorter legislative sessions due to COVID and Joe Biden and was elected um, and now we've seen a unprecedented wave of these bills being introduced that attack the availability of public accommodations to trans people um, and you know we we've seen a, an effort to legislate us out of public space whether that is in sports or in medical care um, and taking away rights in different states in different ways what is your biggest concern Jess with this legislation from a perspective of health care I think there's just so many myths that are being perpetuated by the folks in favor of this legislation and uh, it results in folks who are on the fence or don't quite understand the care that we're providing um, starting to vilify us and, uh, and vilify the youth and adults seeking care. Um, and overall, we're trying to get our story, our practice in, into the media and really let people know that this is medically necessary, life-saving care. Not every trans person wants medical intervention to affirm their identity, but those who do um, should have safe access to it. And, uh, and that when that care is under attack, um, then it really put stress on healthcare systems, on providers, and then certainly on the patients uh, seeking care themselves.
And, and Seth just touched on this a little bit earlier about the stress some of this legislation and, and news about this legislation causes. What impact do you think news about these nationwide anti-transgender bills has on Oregonians? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the impact is largely on a lot of Oregonians' mental health. I think that you see a lot of young people who were already struggling to be in environments in school districts and feel supported and safe and seen. Um, there's such a pressure already not to be trans, and the rhetoric right now is that there is a pressure to be trans, and I think as a trans person, we've really fought against that to be happy and successful, and it's sad to see a lot of lawmakers saying, we want to now take that away from you. Mm -hmm. um, I think the impact is going to be increased catastrophic rates of discrimination um, to see that this is being said is okay um, by certain you know governors and governments um, I think we also have students who need the ability to focus in school and that will be you know impacted by uh, this rhetoric that they are not safe not taken care of and not protected um, one of the biggest things I think that we want to do is make sure people feel valid in their state and so that's what basic rights is fighting for and what is basic rights Oregon doing to support individuals and families the biggest thing is making sure to push public policy that will create protections. At this point, now we're working to shore up the protections that we have as one of the more progressive states. Um, we want to make sure folks have access to health care, to education, to employment. Um, and the biggest thing right now will also be to continue to be progressive. I think it is to shore up the protections in the Oregon Constitution, but then to also continue the work we were doing before these attacks just began um, in 2020. I think that the biggest goal is to make sure that the voices of these families and youth are heard. Um, right now, there's so many narratives that are fear-based that are being said by people who are not trans about our community. And the biggest goal is to make sure that we elevate the voices and organize community members of the trans community to actually have their voices heard um, so that we can pub change public mind and make sure people learn about our community properly. Jess, tell us a little bit about your backstory and what message you want people to take away from this show today during Pride Month. Sure. Uh, as Seth mentioned, you know, visibility is often the way that folks are able to access information, language um, about their experience and their identity. And, you know, I sound like I went to school uphill in the snow both ways, but there wasn't visibility um, in my local community on the East Coast growing up. Um, I only knew one other trans kid and he was bullied mercilessly. And um, I think my teenage brain was like, keep that over there, that is not me. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I read about non-binary people in a textbook and things clicked. Um, and I was in a very theoretical graduate school program um, trending to be a professor when that same friend that I grew up with uh, took his life. And um, that was really my call to action to get back on the ground and, um, and and pay it forward because I've been one of the lucky ones. I have supportive friends and family and um, to the youth who are out there who might be watching this or their families, just know that we're out here, we survived, we continue to survive, we continue to thrive. And we continue to say that you're brave and resilient and as more of these laws get discussed and passed, it's really, really hard to keep saying that we require that of you. So we're gonna have your backs and um, keep shining your light. Very well said, and, and Seth, uh, 30 seconds for a final message you'd like to send to people. Yeah, I would echo Jess that um, you know we're, we're fighting to make sure that this doesn't enter Oregon, and if it has shown up in our districts, in our local areas, uh, the biggest thing is that we, again, will be supporting folks and making sure that we don't see uh, anti-trans rhetoric uh, finding its place here in the state. 
Seth Johnstone, Jess Guerrero, thank you so much for joining us. We want to let everybody know again the numbers for help and support for youth under 25, the Trevor uh, Lifeline, and for the older adults, the Trans Lifeline. You can find those at the bottom of your screen right now. And coming up next, a KGW original podcast should be alive. A look at the murder of Vancouver transgender teen Nikki Kuhnhausen and how her murder inspired a movement. We're back in two minutes. On the next episode of Should Be Alive. Do you think he's remorseful? Yes. Or, or because he got caught? Because he got caught. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Stray Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. That was a clip from the KGW original podcast, Should Be Alive, episode four that dropped this week. The show investigates the 2019 murder of transgender teenage girl Nikki Kuhnhausen from Vancouver, Washington, and how her death inspired a movement. The show's producer and host, our own Ashley Corslin, joins us, along with Lyndon Walls, who is a transgender activist and part of a group called Justice for Nikki. Ashley and Lyndon, welcome to Straight Talk. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Ashley, this is such a powerful story. You tell it in such a compelling way. I hang on every word. I wait every week for the episode to come out. I listened to episode four last night. This is your third true crime podcast. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose Nikki's story to feature for this podcast? I think, um, first and foremost, we really wanted to explore the life that Nikki lived and not just let her be defined by the way she died. Um, but when you think about how violent and senseless her murder was, she was killed at such a young age. She was a child. She was 17 years old. And the fact that she was murdered for who she was just struck a chord with us. It was just so tragic. Um, beyond that, when we started really investigating the case, there was so much we learned that we never were able to present during TV stories. You know, we get to really dive into the, the background of the investigation. And when you learn the suspect, um, the steps he took to avoid any culpability, any responsibility, and leaving Nikki's family and loved ones without justice um, for at least six months, and then the trial didn't happen for two years, it was just excruciating for the family. And so we really wanted to highlight the investigation and, and really how the case came to to be uh, closed as it is today. There are so many twists and turns, and I learned so yeah. much more than I ever did from the news reporting. Uh, Lyndon, before we get into more details on the case, let's find out more about Nikki. You've learned a lot about Nikki from friends, family, especially Nikki's mom. Um, tell us what Nikki was like. Yeah, uh, Nikki was kind of your average teenage girl. She loved to do makeup, uh, take selfies. She made TikToks. She was compassionate and kind. Um, everyone who I talked to has shared that she was warm-hearted and was willing to literally give people the clothes off her back and the food from her fridge. Um, and so that was just the energy that Nikki brought into the world, was just loving support for everyone that she encountered. And she wanted to be a cosmetologist? Yeah, she wanted to be a makeup artist to, to Nikki Minaj, um, to, to makeup artist to the stars. And she always had beautiful makeup on from the <laughs> pictures that I saw. So Ashley, give us a, a brief summary of the case. Yeah, so in June of 2019, Nikki had gone out on a late night walk in Vancouver, and uh, she met a man named David Bogdanov. He stopped her as she was walking, and they, they chatted for a bit, they exchanged snaps, 
Snapchat account information later that night into the early morning hours. Um, they met up for a second time um, and the two got into a vehicle and at some point during their meetup, um, there was a sexual encounter and David Bogdanov discovered Nikki was transgender. And at that point, as investigators um, discovered, he became so outraged that he strangled Nikki with a cell phone charging cord that was in the vehicle and it was just a very um, violent death. Um, after that, he disposed of Nikki's body. He treated it like a piece of garbage. He just dumped Nikki's body off the side of a mountain out at Larch Mountain in Clark County. And he fled to Ukraine for at least six weeks. Um, so he went off the radar. And at some point after that, he came back to the States. Um, and about six months later, Nikki's remains were discovered and David was ultimately arrested. But it took, uh, there was a six month chunk of time where he had no responsibility for what he did. And we have a clip from the first episode. Mm -hmm. uh, set this up for us. Yeah, so um, this clip is from a police interview when David Bogdanov came in for his first police interview with detectives. And this was an audio interview before he was arrested. So at this point, detectives, they hadn't found Nikki's body yet. And so they brought him in because they had connected David through Snapchat, through Nikki's account. So they were able to say he's the last person who communicated mm -hmm. with her. So he agrees to come in for this interview. And this is a clip of where he's denying knowing at all what happened to Nikki. Okay, let's listen. So, so you're the last person to ever see her? Mm, I don't know. And that's why we wanted to talk to you. After she left with you, no one ever saw her again. The last I saw of her was when I asked her to get out of the car, and that's it. And that was just right there in the middle of the street. See, that's not how people disappear. That's not how stuff happens to people. So what do you think happened to her? I have no idea. Is she alive? <laughs> I don't know. It is so dramatic to, to listen to that interview. Lyndon, when she disappeared, you got involved. How did you get involved? What did you do? Yeah, so after Nikki disappeared, it was hard to, to go anywhere in Clark County and not see missing posters, um, just asking for any information. So through that, I was connected with Lisa, Nikki's mom, and some other community members to join what we named the task force uh, Justice for Nikki. So our goal was to make sure that people heard Nikki's name and knew what what Nikki endured and then also knew about the change that Nikki's, Nikki's death caused. And, and so tragically, as you mentioned, Ashley, Nikki's body was found on Larch Mountain several months after she disappeared. And, and through the podcast, you follow that interview with Bogdanov, his eventual arrest, his trial, his conviction, and that would eventually, and I haven't gotten to this part of the podcast yet, but I, I know you eventually talk about Nikki's Law that came yes. out of this. Tell us, what is that? So Nikki's Law prohibits what's known as the gay or trans panic defense in Washington state. And so what that is, um, the, if you've heard of the panic defense, it's essentially it's a strategy in which a defendant or a defense attorney will try to cast blame on a victim. So it can be a victim in an in in assault or a murder and the defendant essentially blames the discovery of the victim's either um, sexuality or gender identity for 
throwing them into what they would consider, I, I freaked out, I went into a rage and I cannot be held responsible for my actions, so either assaulting that victim or killing them. Um, and so Nikki's law will prohibit any defendant in the future from being able to use that strategy in Washington state. Well, sadly, Nikki's law isn't going to stop violence against transgender individuals. As we talked about in the first segment, we saw an assault at, at Kalama High School. But what do you hope, Lyndon, that Nikki's law does achieve? Yeah, I do hope that Nikki's law achieves cultural awareness to the fact that this is a challenge that the trans community still faces, uh, that violence against gay and trans people is still something that we are dealing with in 2022. I also hope that that the queer and trans community is able to feel validated and protected um, in that maybe someone will know that there would be more consequence or that they won't be able to use that excuse uh, and maybe stop violence before it happens. Well, the fifth episode of your podcast comes out next week. So tell us what can we look forward to and set up this next clip that we have. So the, the fifth episode really dives into the trial, which happened in August of 2021. So it was relatively recent. Um, and the whole trial was recorded through the, the court TV system. And so we have, um, you know, audio to walk us through that whole process. And what you'll hear in episode five is really what David Bogdanov's defense team presented as his defense. And it was a bit of a curveball ahead of trial. About two weeks before it began, um, prosecutors learned that David was going to claim self-defense. They didn't know that until right before the trial. Wow. And then also that he planned on taking the stand in his own defense. And so that was a new revelation as the case inched closer to trial. Um, and so in episode five, you will hear a lot of the moment when David Bogdanov took the stand and how he outlines this whole narrative that Nikki was the aggressor. Um, he portrays her as someone who attacked him when he asked Nikki to leave his car um, and he claims Nikki reached for a gun in the car and that David thought he would be shot and so therefore he strangled her. And so you will hear a whole um, that whole chunk of him on the stand and that's what uh, you can expect. Okay, let's listen to this episode. You used an iPhone charging cord to strangle Nikki. Correct? Yes. When you found out that she was transgender, you were furious. I wasn't furious. I was more of shocked. Shocked at being deceived. So you were upset that you'd been deceived? Of course. Who wouldn't be? What straight male wouldn't be in that kind of a situation? Earlier you said you called her a disgusting piece of crap. What exactly did you say to her? Those weren't your words, right? You said something else? Uh, disgusting piece of So you called her a disgusting piece of And we'll hear more of his testimony in the next episode. Uh, Lyndon, what message do you hope people who listen to this podcast take away from it? I hope the message that people take away from this podcast is that Nikki was kind and compassionate and that transphobia can lead to extreme circumstances uh, all the way to death. Um, I think in this case, Nikki experienced the most extreme form of transphobia. Uh, and so I think people understanding that this is a challenge that is faced everywhere from small microaggressions to the ending of a life. And how is the trans community feeling right now? I think right now tensions are, are feeling a little bit high as uh, you know there were some things that happened in Idaho this past week so I think that the threat level is a little bit high but I think the trans community is resilient 
and I think Nikki's law gives hope, at least in Clark County, that even in a conservative place, that Nikki's name was defended and, and she, uh, there was justice for her and, and the crime that she experienced. What has it meant to you, Ashley, to work on this podcast? What have you taken away from it? And what do you hope people take away from it? Well, kind of to echo what Lyndon was just saying, I hope um, people really learn about the impact Nikki had on people and take away what a beautiful soul she was. She did not deserve what happened to her. Um, I hope that for Nikki's family that they do feel some sense of justice with the way the case came um, to an end. Of course, no prison sentence for any defendant is ever going to bring back a child or a loved one, a sister. Um, I hope that people hear this and they they open their minds and they, they understand that this is a real issue. This The escalating acts of violence against transgender people, which we explore, um, have been increasing over the past several years, especially as data has been tracked. And um, it's really disheartening to hear that, but I hope people do hear it. It's tough kind of to swallow that and, and understand that it's a real thing. People face real threats. And I hope people just become more open-minded and kinder. I hope we're all kinder people at the end of the day. And briefly, Lyndon, you have some plans. Nikki, Justice for Nikki has some plans as far as a scholarship. Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been working with Lisa, Nikki's mom, to put together a scholarship. We're in the beginning stages, but putting together a scholarship for transgender and gender diverse people who are interested in cosmetology or beauty arts. Yeah. It sounds like a wonderful scholarship, a wonderful idea to remember Nikki. Yeah. Lyndon, Ashley, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. And I highly recommend that you download the podcast. It's brilliantly told and you can get it wherever you get your podcast. Join us next week on Straight Talk. We'll look at what's happened following the passage of Washington's Tiffany Hill Law, named after a mother murdered in front of her children by her estranged, abusive husband. That's coming up next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week, and you can always find Straight Talk as a podcast wherever you got, get your podcast. Just search for KGW Straight Talk.